You're listening to a podcast of spurious morality. Oh, that, that was even better than last week's. Oh, thank you. And welcome to a podcast of spurious morality. I'm Johnston, and we are continuing our journey today through season four of Classic Doctor Who. Uh, as last week, I have Jimmy with me. Hey. Uh, Greg's here. Hello, everybody. And we have Sam as well. Hello, hello. So we covered the first half of the season in our previous episode. Uh, that included, obviously, the Tenth Planet. We talked about the first of Regeneration, and we looked at Patrick Troughton's first couple of stories. So we finished the Highlanders. Jamie has joined the TARDIS. He's part of the TARDIS team. We've got a very busy TARDIS now. We've got we've got four of them in there: the Doctor, Jamie, and Polly, and Ben. So um, let's let's talk about where they get up to next, or what they get up to next, uh, which is the underwater menace. Uh, so um, we are going to be talking about the second half of season four. So obviously there will be spoilers, but it's spoilers for serials that are well over fifty years old now. So I'm hoping if you're listening to this, you've perhaps had a chance to catch up. Uh, so let's go with Underwater Menace. Uh, Jimmy, what are your thoughts on it? I think it's, um, obviously it's the least of the season, unfortunately, but I think it's a testament to how good this season is that it's still pretty great in its own right. I mean, um, it, I think it's helped a lot by the recovery of the second episode and having two of the four instead of just one makes it a bit easier to keep up with rather than having to rely on the... Um, narrated audios for most of it in just half of it I, I think it's a pity that it wasn't animated when it was supposed to be for the dvds but hopefully it will be eventually i think it's a good little story i think it's interesting that for a story that um is set in atlantis it's not the mythical heyday of you know however many thousands upon thousands of years ago but it's it's in the modern day and it's these survivors and I think that's just an interesting take on it and I think the way they have the whole society under there and the whole conflict between, um, ah, hang on, I'm mentally blanking on the name, um, Zaroth. Zaroth and the scientists he's trained versus the traditional culture and the beliefs it's, I think they do an interesting job of building this society and I think it's also interesting that at the end of the story it doesn't exactly end with Atlantis destroyed like everyone talks about the three destructions of Atlantis in Doctor Who's history, but it's only part of the city that's destroyed. They have mentions, however brief, of the survivors and what they're going to do and I'm surprised that's something that's never been followed up in the extended universe and I think it does a great job of um, setting up this new TARDIS team like Jamie's having his first full adventure and getting used to everything. And Polly has, she's a bit underserved, like when she's nearly turned into a fish person and all that, but she still has a clever moment when she works out the year before the doctor came because she sees the little um, piece of um, pottery or something from the Olympics that hadn't happened yet. And that's another cool thing about the story. I mean, it's set in the future, but only barely because it was made in what 66 and yet they're saying it's set after the 68 Olympics. And I like that they don't just go, Oh, well we've landed in the present day again. It's like, no, it just happens to be a couple of years later. It's just a nice little twist there. And I think Ben 
does pretty well too because usually he gets sidelined a bit once Jamie's arrived. But him and Jamie work together pretty well in this when they're um, riling up the uh, fish people and the other workers. And I love that Ben gets the line about the doctor. Well, blimey, look at him. He ain't normal, is he? It's, <laughs> it's just such a good summary of how weird Troughton's portrayal is this early on. But I think Troughton does really well with it and I love his little funny disguise and, yeah, it's just really an underrated story for me, I think. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you that it is it is quite underrated and I seem to remember that because um, it was uh, the, the second episode was discovered at the same time as uh, Airlock, the third episode of Galaxy 4. Yeah, that's right. And I seem to remember everyone kind of going... Oh, they're both a bit rubbish, really. But I'm more excited about Galaxy. I'm like, what are you on about? No, Underwater Menace Two. It's we've now got half of that story, and it's it's a really weird story, and it's a bit of season four that we just don't get to look at. And it was it, it's the earliest existing uh, or known to exist Trouton episode, and no, it was a great find. It was an absolutely brilliant find, and it does have some brilliant moments. The Doctor um, blowing up the pots to demonstrate pressure, and uh, the you know the cliffhanger is really good. Sort of the the king's siding with Zaroff, and yeah, it, it it was a really really good find. It's it's I'm sorry, Galaxy Four, but Underwater Menace Part Two is a way more exciting find, and uh, I do thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, Greg, what are your thoughts on it? Underwater Menace, I think, has an undeserved reputation for being just totally awful. Um, objectively speaking, it, it's not the best story Doctor Who ever did. It's one of the weaker stories of the Troughton era. But for me, the worst sin that Doctor Who can commit, and this has been true through its entire run, is being boring. There is nothing worse than a boring Doctor Who story. And Underwater Menace, for whatever faults it has, is absolutely not boring. It is just wacky. It's out there. Crazy, unpredictable stuff keeps happening throughout. It's it's very, very entertaining, even if, again, it's perhaps not the, 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 the best production they ever did. Um, Zaroff holds the whole thing together. Joseph First's performance is just completely unhinged. The very famous cliffhanger to episode three, as ridiculous as it is, it, it, it works for me. I don't know why. Um, you, you get to see some other, you know, interesting little notes, like this is the last story really in which they try to play up this doctor's predilection for disguises where he's uh, disguising himself in the market. Um, after this, he really sort of stops doing that and becomes a bit more serious, especially in season four. But there's, there's some flaws too. As much as I like Ben and Polly and as much as I like Jamie, they have no idea what to do with three companions. And you see that in this story where basically each companion disappears from the action for extended periods of time. Polly is not, not treated very well in this. She's often reduced to the, the, the screaming the screaming girl role basically. And that's never good. And Ben has a lot to do. Jamie doesn't really, it, it, it feels cluttered. It feels like they added this new character and now they don't know how to put them all together. Um, but overall though, again, just, just for how out there this story is, I think it's a lot of fun to watch. And I agree that when they found the second episode, it really expanded our comprehension of it. Also, I love the dance of the fish people, so I'll just leave it there. That that fish people dance scene is it's bizarre. It's it's some of the best padding in Doctor Who ever. That like we've got a 20-minute episode, it needs to be 25. Let's just put on this weird underwater or on strings in in uh, a studio somewhere. Uh, sort of display and yeah very very odd but um fantastically done and it, it's a better way of filling the time than another sort of escape and recapture routine which becomes increasingly common as uh 
as the Troughton era goes on, I think, I think, you know, we've got some, in season five, we've got some long base under siege stories. So a bit of escape recapture, escape recapture is needed to keep the stories going. At least with this, it did something different, something entertaining. Uh, Sam, what are your thoughts? Uh, so my memory of a lot of season four is based on the initial, I th- think I, I mentioned this a bit last episode, the sort of, um, when I watched the recons, when I was sort of uh, 14 or 15, um, out of curiosity more than uh, like a burning desire to, to watch these stories. And with every one of them, uh, I was really surprised. And I'd heard that Underwater Menace had a bad reputation, but was kind of, shot how much I enjoyed not just how much I enjoyed it but how much I enjoyed the sort of still images set to soundtrack version of it you know um I think episode two had been found by this point so that was uh, a delight you know getting to see the sort of like um the early earlier version of the second doctor before he, he's kind of been um as like well established as he is in some later stories that I'd already seen um so I really enjoyed that and like it's it's daft, right? Undaughter Menace is inherently kind of a silly story with a silly promise and a silly villain, but it's really, really fun to watch. And for me, it's kind of like um, peak peak 60s Doctor Who in that it, it's that the kind of like, it feels so uh, kind of retro in, in how like theatrical it is and, and how kind of um, just, yeah, just kind of like, out there and, and weird and interesting but uh it is and it's it's premise and it's plotting but it, it really really worked for me and um yeah i i really enjoyed watching it i'm a big fan of like um ben and polly especially but jamie is a nice addition to the story and i think although they are split up each of them gets a good moment and i just um i just remember really enjoying when i first watched it really enjoying episode one with the kind of because it's a kind of like, well, it's it's missing, but I, all of the things I like about Doctor Who, the, the Doctor Companion dynamics, the investigative side of it, it, that was all there in something really, really old. Like these are the first classic stories I watched from beginning to end rather than sort of like random individual episodes. And I was shocked by how much how much I liked it. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it, it's, it's probably actually sort of a, a good story to enjoy via reconstruction because it's, you know, we have the telesnaps and we've got a very good idea of what was going on. We've got a couple of episodes, so we do know what Atlantis looked like and how it was. You know, we're missing, I suppose, uh, the location filming from that first episode. But, yeah, I can imagine it being sort of quite an easy one to sort of piece together with the reconstruction. Um. But yeah, it's 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 a fun little story, and it's it is out there. It's doing something wild and different, and it's it's got one of the most infamous but brilliant performances Doctor Who's ever seen. You know, we've already mentioned Professor Zaroff, Joseph First is great. Uh, yeah, I, I I thoroughly enjoy it as a story, and I hope that uh, when the season four Blu-ray comes around, it is done justice with an animation, maybe. Uh, let's move on to our next story then. So we're going to the moon. It's the moon base. The Cybermen are back. Um, and it's a very, very similar story to the 10th planet, I think, the moon base. Um, they, they kind of hit on a, a format that worked and ran with it. So the moon base, uh, Jimmy, what are your thoughts? I think one of the good things about this, even though it's so soon after the 10th planet, we see a sort of different side of the Cybermen. I mean... For a start, there's the physical change, and, I mean, they had to do that for production reasons, but it works out for the best because it gives you this idea that, you know, this race has this extensive history and they're going to be differently built and have different technologies at different points. And I think the new look was quite good. I, I prefer the original, of course, but, um, yeah, it's um, it's a good look and it, um, the story itself is pretty good. I think... The disappointment is how underused Jamie is with, of course, getting knocked out and then having his worries about the Phantom Piper. And I think they had to obviously do something to, you know, keep the regulars apart and to give a bigger role to the ones that they were going to use. But I think it's a shame because I love this TARDIS team and I wish they got more time together and that they got to build their dynamic. Um, 
another interesting thing about this story, it also goes for Underwater Menace. Um, I, it's something they didn't really repeat often in Doctor Who, but the bits where you hear what the Doctor's thinking, I mean, in Underwater Menace at the start, they had that bit about where would you like to land and all all of the TARDIS crew were thinking things to themselves and you hear their thoughts. And in Moonbase, the Doctor's thinking how to solve a problem and he sort of has this dialogue with himself and it's it's just such an interesting thing because it's not something Doctor Who usually does. It's a bit weird and out there, but um, it gives you an interesting sort of glimpse into the Doctor's head, which for this early on when he's still not quite settled in this new Doctor, it's, yeah, it's interesting to sort of hear that. Um I think the other good thing about this story is I love the animation. It's It really helps when the stories are animated. I, I don't cope well with um, reconstructions. I just can't really deal. I prefer to listen if there isn't an animation to just the narrated soundtrack with no visuals. But, yeah, it's always great when a story is finally animated. And I think the one fault I'd give with this story is the cyber voices are a bit too... Uh, a bit too electronic and too distorted. You can't quite tell what they're saying sometimes and thank goodness for subtitles basically, but that's just one small nitpick in an otherwise pretty great story. Yeah, it's uh, a degree that it's definitely has its little flaws here and there, but it's it's a nicely solid story and the new Cybermen costumes, they do work well. They're more... I mean, the Cybermen immediately went more robotic with this design and kind of stayed more robotic throughout. Uh, we kind of lost any hint of organic part of them. Of course, they are supposed to be part organic, part machine. Um, but really, the only hint we get after this, certainly in the classic series, it's um, the fact that you can see the Cyber Leader's mouth in Earthshock. Otherwise... You could be mistaken for thinking that Cybermen are robots from this point onwards. Um, but it's a good costume. I like the costume. I agree with you. The The voices are a little bit over-electronic, over uh, but I think that it's they do work. They are sort of believable as cyber voices, and they're not the worst voices in Doctor Whoever. They're not the hardest to work out what they're saying. So... It's something that I'm able to kind of give a pass. Uh, Greg, what are your thoughts on the moon base? I think the moon base is a tale of two halves, which I've said about some other stories. Um, the first half of it is a very atmospheric, a very interesting, dramatic buildup of trying to solve the mystery of what's going on on the moon base. Um, course at the end of episode one we find out it's the cybermen that are involved but it takes all of episode two to really find out what it is they're they're planning and what they want and i think these episodes with you know with the doctor running around trying to piece everything together with jamie being ill in the sick bay and being menaced by the cyberman in episode two there's a lot of interesting drama there the problem is, is we get to episode three and you said it was similar to the 10th planet. It's basically identical to the 10th planet from that point on. Like all the plot beats are the same. The concepts are the same. It's, you know, granted it's, it's now the, the, the graviton is, is the issue, but otherwise that's all, it, it's all basically the same story at that point. And coming so soon after the 10th planet, it just doesn't work very well for me because I, I just find myself watching it and saying, really? Like you, you couldn't do anything different than this at all. But that being said too, there are still several appealing elements. You, you've both talked about the, the Cyberman costumes being an improvement, which I agree on. I kind of like the voices, even if they're a little hard to understand. We're already getting into the conflict between the show saying that the Cybermen have no emotions, but then their dialogue being clearly emotion-driven, you know, clever, 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 that kind of thing. But that's been a consistent issue in Doctor Who forever, so it's no surprise to see it starting early on. Um, I, I think we have the same issue here again with what do we do with all these companions? I mean, I, I think it works dramatically to have Jamie being menaced in, in the sick bay, but at the same time, it's also an easy way to write him out of most of the story because they don't know what to do with him. 
Um, uh, Polly, even though she herself acquits herself very well, you know, inventing the, the, the solvent cocktail to destroy the Cybermen, she's really treated disrespectfully by the other characters and it's a little uncomfortable. I don't know. I, I, this, I think this story, it, it's, it's not bad. I mean, again, it's entertaining, but man, once you hit that third part and it starts retreading all the same ground, it, it, it gets tougher to watch. It's, it's not one of my favorite stories of this season. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. What you say about the, uh, the companions, just, uh, they honestly kind of added Jamie last minute in the Highlanders. And here we are sort of six, seven, eight weeks later, and they've still kind of not quite figured out how they're going to make this work. Um, it does pick up quite a lot from here on, thankfully. But yeah, Jamie had kind of a a bit of a rough start. I think Underwater Menace, he just got given some of Ben's lines and that was pretty much his role in the story. And then in this one, he bangs his head and we don't see him for most of it. Um, there is a moment in this one that always makes me laugh. I can't, I can't not enjoy it. And it's when they use the tray that the coffees came in on to patch up the hole in the uh, side of the base to stop them all being sucked out into a vacuum. It's it's one of the most sort of brilliant, hilarious, ridiculous, but it gets away with it because it's Doctor Who moments there is. It, it's fantastic. Uh, Sam, what are your thoughts on the moon base? It's it's not a favourite. I mean, there's been some sort of mentions some criticisms already. I absolutely agree that that Polly is badly served in the story, or or rather, you know, she gets her uh, she gets a good moment, but um, is belittled by by the 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 sort of the male cast of the story and by the writers, and that's not great. Um, I think yeah, there are issues with like companions in the story. I do really enjoy Jamie's reaction to being on the moon. Um, I think that's that's great and and probably the best bit he gets in the story i think um but it's um yeah i don't know i i actually really like the 10th planet cyberman designs i think sort of perhaps even unintentionally creepy with the the sort of the human hands and the cloth masks and the and the voices i think they there's a reason they've been brought back so much by big finish and in, and in the tv series in that they're kind of unique and so making them more robotic take some of the the yeah, the kind of like just inherent creepiness that they they've had and they've made into more kind of um, straightforward monsters, I guess. Um, I do enjoy some of the vibes the story has, like the just just a moon base that can <clears throat> that controls the Earth's weather and things like that. Again, it's getting at that kind of retro sixties feel uh, that I I really really enjoyed when I first watched these. Um, Although I think uh, when I watched the Moonbase, it was the, the animation. And I actually really rate the animation of the story. Um, I think, um, yeah, it's, I don't know, it just it's kind of like nice and sort of stylized, but it manages to do the um, kind of motion. But it's one, one of the best uh, that the DVD range has produced, I think. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm a big fan of that one. Yeah, And I think that it's, it's a story that uh, probably did require animation. There are a lot of sort of action, visual action sequences with little or no dialogue and that sort of slightly over the top, oddly jolly music um, while people are being chased across the moon's surface and murdered by Cybermen. Um, but yeah, it's. I think the animation really has helped this one. Um, but it's it's definitely not the best of the season. Uh, but there's still an awful lot there to enjoy. So uh, let's move on. And uh, actually, I'm not quite moving on just yet. I'm, I'm in the last couple of minutes of the moon base where the series suddenly throws itself back to the first season and we have a cliffhanger at the end of the serial that's slightly contrived, but I like it. Uh, the Doctor suddenly goes, by the way, the scanner can can see through time as well. Let's check the time scanner. And then we see a macra's claw. And it's a great little cliffhanger. It's a great sort of little throwback to that first season where every story did end with a bit of a cliffhanger that led straight into the next one. So I do enjoy that. Uh, so the macra terror. Um, this is one that I could not get my head around and couldn't really appreciate. And then 
they animated it and I instantly just fell in love with it. When you could see what the story was doing, and it is a very visual story, um, there was a hell of a lot to appreciate. Uh, I'm still slightly gutted that that scene was removed from the animation, but at the same time, I can understand why it was. The the one where the Doctor goes through the kind of um, the freshening up process and has his hair done and then he messes it back up. It's a shame that's not there, but like I say, I can understand that with certain constraints that that scene didn't make it. I can understand why. Uh, so, Jimmy, what are your thoughts on the Macra Terror? I think definitely the animation helped hugely with this story. I thought it was pretty good, but nothing spectacular before I saw the animation, but the animation, I absolutely loved it. I mean, I am still pissed off to this day about the cuts they made. I think that saying it was just frippery was a huge misunderstanding. I think, like, the scene where the Doctor, they try to force conformity on the Doctor, they try to put him through the cleaning thing and he just straight away goes and messes it up again. I mean, that's just, that's like character summation. That's that's what Troughton does. They You try to put him in a single straight line, do this, everything conform, and he just straight away goes, no, I'm not going to do that. And I think it was a lovely scene and I think it's a huge shame that they cut that. I think the cuts are my only really big complaint with the Macro Terror. I... I love the story we do have and I love the stuff they did animate, but I think those missing scenes are always going to disappoint me. Um, but yeah, it's such a great story. And I think the animation obviously helps in terms of how the macro look and they're obviously going to be much better realized than they are in the old telesnaps and such. But I think the story itself just really works well. Like this whole society pretending everything's happy and fine and you've got your outsider in Medoc who doesn't think it is and people are treating him like he's got some sort of problem, like he's he's the one that's insane for not believing everything's fine. And I think it just, the, especially for the TARDIS team, it's really good how well they get to deal with the whole hypnotism and indoctrination thing because the Doctor's brilliant speech to Polly when he tells her, don't do what you're told, think for yourself and all that is... I can't remember the exact wording right now, but that, that whole speech is just iconic. It's a really, especially not just as a doctor speech, but as a second doctor speech, it really sums him up and it gives her a good sort of kickback to reality. And the other good thing is the contrast in Jamie and Ben and how they deal with the indoctrination. Like Jamie is naturally like, oh, what's this? I don't believe it. And he's natural resistance. It sort of, it speaks to their characters for me. Like for Jamie, He's used to being this oppressed underdog in the whole Scotland being taken over by England thing back in his own time. And so he's automatically inclined to resist. He's inclined to think for himself. And whereas Ben, he's he's a Navy boy. He's been trained in this specific way and he's used to taking orders. And so he just falls for it like that. And I think it's really good contrast in their characters. And it also leads to some more great character stuff with um, Ben when Ben's selling them out and the doctor's like, I understand it's okay and he's sort of very much still of the feeling that it's still Ben and Ben can still come back and be good again whereas James like oh no stuff that he's terrible he's sold us out and yeah I just love character stuff like that and seeing different sides of different members of the TARDIS team and I think this is probably the best story for this TARDIS team and it just it it's really rare that they're all handled well, especially between Jamie and Ben, who usually one gets sidelined so the other can shine, whereas in this story I think they both get a chance to shine and that's definitely a highlight of the story for me. I, I do agree that this does handle the sort of busy TARDIS very well, but it's I do find it a shame that the one time Ben and Jamie are able to shine in the same story is when... Ben gets brainwashed early on and remains essentially a villain throughout, or certainly following the instructions of villains throughout. Um, I wish that we'd have got to see perhaps a little bit more of the two characters teaming up and that sort of thing. I think they work very well together, and I think Big Finish have done some excellent stuff with the two characters together in the early adventures. They do get paired off a little bit, whereas the TV series, it never really did it. But yeah, I agree. It's it's a great story for every single TARDIS traveller. Um, Greg, what are your thoughts? I like that this story is about something. I like the message that it has. It, it's, it's, it's not subtle, certainly. 
but I like having the doctor really defined as this nonconformist sort of character, because that's something that sets Troughton apart from William Hartnell. I mean, Hartnell, for all of his many uh, wonderful traits, his doctor was was not one that was often challenging the, the fundamental status quo, whereas Troughton has really no, no respect for that sort of thing at all. Um, not that Hartnell didn't do it. I mean, even as early as Keys of Marinus, he's, you know, challenging what he sees as injustice, but Troughton seems much more willing to overturn an entire society if he's given the opportunity. And that's certainly what happens here. I also like how we see more evolution of this doctor here because he's, he's not the sort of doctor who will face up to the bad guy and have this really dramatic showdown. He's more inclined to work in the background and quietly manipulate people. And and you really see that here where he's kind of just this figure on, on the periphery. It, it, it just, it, it works really well. I, I think the animation, like, like you, you've both said adds a lot to this. I also like how the animation decides to make the macra convincing instead of trying to animate what were almost certainly terrible crab models. Um, so I, I really like that because it, it lends the story um, a much more uh, a veneer of believability that may not have been there if we had the actual recordings of it. I really like Macro Terror. It's it's a it's a smart story. It 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 again it has something to say. It's it's aggressively nonconformist. It's it's a great feature for the Doctor. It's like you said, a great feature for Ben as as bad guy. It lets Jamie finally have something to do. Again, Polly not treated very well. I think that's becoming a recurring theme, which is sad because she she had so much more to offer. But yeah, I, I really enjoy this. And, and this is honestly a story where I wonder if we found the whole thing, if it might not go down in some fans' estimations, because there's just no way that this would look as good in real life as it does in this animation. But certainly, no matter what form we have it in, the script is excellent. So we always have that. It's uh, it's interesting what you're saying about sort of the Doctor, you know, very much being the second Doctor in this one. I do think it's when we sort of first get to see the second Doctor as he will continue. Troughton's kind of come out of his what's this character going to be phase, how am I going to play him phase, and sort of settled on a portrayal. Um, there were some brilliant moments in it for the Doctor, um, some of which kind of, you will see sort of repeated as the run goes on, the sort of the collaborating uh, with the villains while sort of sometimes playing dumb, sometimes kind of questioning them while he collaborates and it's all a big trick anyway. Um, you know, we, we do see a little bit of that, the second Doctor kind of playing dumb around villains. It's done, it's done, I think, most notably in the Dominators, but we do see it quite a bit. Um, there's also that fantastic little moment where he uh, sort of marks his own work on the board and gives himself, is it, is it 10 out of 10 or does he even give himself 11 out of 10? I can't remember now. Um, but it's it's just a great moment uh, where we get this sort of childish, impish doctor that you know we, we do know and love as the second doctor now. Uh, Sam, what are your thoughts on the Macro Terror? So I've never seen the animation. Um, I didn't like that they made it in color. I didn't like that they removed my favorite scene. So I just sort of um, didn't watch it out of spite. But I still love this story. Um, like like you said, it's kind of like um, it's it's got themes. It's uh, you know it's about um, yeah not it's it's really it's about not conforming. It's about and I kind of like I love the setting. <laughs> kind of future earth colony that's styled after like evil butlins um or that that kind of like the, the holiday camp feel um i think that's that's a really interesting choice and i've always found 
the I've been to Butlins once, but I found all of the kind of enforced jollity and the uniforms of the staff and all of this things like a, a little bit sinister. Um, and I think this kind of like think like mid sixties, this the boat that sort of thing had been around for about ten years. So it was like not as I guess that was the heyday of the holiday camp. Um and yeah, it gets like the kind of the this like creepiness, just the bad vibes of places that places like that have have for me. Um so I really like that. And yeah, as we said, like um the doctor is on is on fire and the story is great. Um I think uh I really like what Jimmy was saying about the differences between Ben and Jamie and how they respond to the conditioning i think that's really cool um and i I like it's got a little bit more because russell t zabies brought back the macro um and i obviously saw that that story first um it's got holds of weird again i think last episode i was talking about stuff being recontextualized and the gridlock doesn't add much to the macro right in fact devolves them but it's having them be an enemy that uh then would return years later gave it a bit more uh, it had a bit more interest to me when i when i first watched the the reconstruction um so yeah i think that's i think that's really cool uh, most of what i like about it has already been said but um yeah it's it's a great story it's it's saying stuff it's got some really cool the macro themselves not not a cool design on on screen i think they built the prop around like a like a am i right thinking it was like built on a, on a car or something it was really clunky and didn't work so like it's the the fact that i haven't seen that in motion is maybe maybe for the for the best and help me help me enjoy the story more but i thought yeah it's good stuff and also i think is isn't this the first time that the doctor's face appears in the title sequence like it's kind of not not really to do with the story itself but i just find that interesting that that's this is where that that kind of long tradition sort of started. Yes, this one gets the new title sequence. Um, I can't remember if it's the first episode or whether it's just like weirdly dropped in the third. I think, I, I think it. I thought it was the. I thought it was in the second episode because they like messed up and it wasn't in the first, but it was meant to debut. No, no, no. Um, I, could, I could be wrong. You you have the um the new title sequence in all four of the episodes, but it's in the faceless ones that you get the new theme music. And that's where they screwed up and didn't put the new music in episode one. So you don't yeah, actually. Right. Oh, oh, right. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a great little story. It, it really is. And it, it's, you're right. It's got something to say. It's, it's definitely playing up on that holiday camp thing. You're absolutely spot on with that. And, yeah, it, it's it, it's a good story, but it, it was definitely the animation that sort of brought me to fully appreciate it. Anyway, let's move on. Um, we will go to um, the one that I'd consider to be my favourite story of this season, actually, uh, the Faceless Ones. Um, there's a lot going on in this one. It's Malcolm Hulk's first Doctor Who. Um, it's... Uh, Polly and Ben's last story, the way their departures handled is just as terrible as the last few companion departures we've talked about, unfortunately. Uh, But I really like the airport setting. I really like uh, some of the uh, guest characters. The Commandant feels very real. Gene Rock feels very real. Uh, The Inspector, I think he's called Gascoigne, he's really good. And then a, a clone of him turns out to be the bad guy a chameleon disguised as him turns out to be the bad guy. And yeah, it's, it's a great little story. And for a six parter, it does seem to keep moving. It never sort of, it never stops. It's got a really good pace. Uh, So Jimmy, what are your thoughts on the faceless ones? This is another one where I think definitely having the animation helped a lot because before the animation I'd thought, yeah, it's good, but yeah. Whereas when the animation came out, I pretty much loved it. I think the main problem for me with the story is how underused Ben and Polly are and how much of a disappointment it is that that's their final story. Cause I think when I first saw it, I thought it was understandable because I think they were only contracted for two episodes, but then I read a while later, no, no, they were actually contracted as far as the second episode of evil. So they could have easily had them in all of the faceless ones. And so that made me disappointed that they didn't because I think they did well with the material they had, but it was a shame how little there was of them. And lots of people talk about how great Sam would have been as a new companion, but personally, I don't see it. She was 
she worked okay for the role she filled in the story, but she didn't really have much to her. I I didn't get what everyone else seems to love about her, so I think it would have been better to just have Ben and Polly in for the whole story, even if you have to have them as the chameleon duplicates for a while, but give them the full story to themselves before they depart. And I think the one good thing about their departure is, unlike, say, Dodo, they actually do at least get a final scene with the Doctor, and it may not be much, but I think it's pretty good that, um, first of all, they, they get that acknowledgement of their time together and they get to sort of say goodbye and they've landed on the same day they left, so it's even worked out perfectly for them. But I think it was one of them. I think it was Ben. I'm not 100% certain because it's a little while since what's the story, but when he says at the end, we will stay if you need us, and I just thought that was such a great moment because they've, they've been for since Barbara and Ian, they're the first companions that have really wanted to get home the whole time, and yet here they are back home literally the same day and Ben's still saying, if you need us, we'll stay with you. And I think that speaks to how great a companion and hardest team they are, that they'd give up their home to keep travelling just if if the Doctor wasn't ready. And, I mean, it's, yeah, I love that scene. I think it's a great end to the story and I do think it's a shame, though, that they didn't get much to do and especially in the first episode when they all split up and the Doctor yells scatter and three of them run in, run, run in one direction and Ben goes off in the other by himself and it's a bit of an excuse to abandon him, which I think they should have maybe filmed it a little bit differently and had them all go off the separate ways but because it looked a bit bad. It looked like, hey, let's abandon Ben. But, yeah, um, I really liked the story. I think the um, other things that I like were, um, well, not so much like, but there's one scene in particular that surprised me because, of course, you'd never get away with it today when the Doctor's trying to stall for time in the commandant's office and he's, he makes a bomb threat in an airport. I mean, holy they'd never get away with that on the BBC today. So it's just another interesting little thing about the different time that this was made in and one of those things that brings home just how far back it was, more than the black and white. It's stuff like that that shows you, wow, this is a long time ago. I'd completely forgotten about that scene, but, yeah, you're right, he's... I remember first watching it when I was quite a bit younger and sort of, well, the first first episode at least, and sort of didn't quite get that obviously airport security is a lot tighter now than it would have been in the 60s. And I was just amazed at how the Doctor and Jamie were allowed to wander around this airport. Um, like, why, why are you letting them do this? Surely they'd never get through there. What are they doing in the Commandant's office? Uh, but yeah, you're right, obviously. it's. Uh, I suspect even then it kind of made some, shall we say, creative allowances. Um, but yeah, it, it's. I love the fact that it doesn't really take the Doctor all that long to just get free run of the airport. Um, Greg, what are your thoughts on this one? There are parts that I like for sure, and there are parts that I don't. Um, as you said, I like the airport setting of it a lot. I think it's just a complete departure from anywhere that Doctor Who has been before, and they and they really make make a lot of good use out of it. Um, the overall plot is interesting. There's obviously a lot of invasion of the body snatchers in there. Um, it, it's a great story where we finally get to see the relationship between the doctor and Jamie that's going to define the rest of the Troughton era. Um, but, you know, unfortunately that comes at the expense of Ben and Polly who just get written out of the story with very little explanation only to pop up at the end to say goodbye. And the, the goodbye scene's good. I, I don't have any issue with that, but it, it's it's very clear that throughout this period of three companions, they just had no idea how to use all three of them. And someone's always getting written out or, or being knocked unconscious or just disappearing from the story. And that reaches its nadir here when Ben and Polly just... It, you had an opportunity here with them, you know, as being being duplicated, you know, having them be villains, you know, do kind of what you did with Ben and again in the Macro Terror, have Polly do something like that. But instead they just kind of vanish from the story and, and we don't we don't see them again. My other issue with this story is that it just it it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's it's too long. I think it was originally made as four parts, intended to be made as four parts, and it had to be stretched into six. And you can really see that. I mean, 
some of the episodes really just retread the same ground over and over again. Um, they, 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 the, the general idea of this body snatchers kind of story is good, but the, when you really drill down on what the chameleons are, are doing, it, 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 it doesn't really hold up very well. Um, the, the, it, it, it doesn't ever seem like there's much of a threat. It just, it doesn't, it really just doesn't hold together completely for me. Um, I, I, I enjoy watching it. Like it, 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 it only gets dull really in the middle, but I, I don't think it's one of the stronger stories of the season. Yeah. It, I mean, I, like I say, I, I think it keeps going. I think even, I think it's one of those stories that quite a few from the Trouton era suffer from this, and that's, or at least did suffer from this, and it's that one of the episodes that exists is the most dull episode, and that's episode three. Um, it's the one where the least happens, um, and it, it just sort of treads ground and has a lot of people wandering around, go, oh, there's a mystery here, and then the inspector kind of accidentally uncovers it. Um, I suspect that, you know, like Enemy of the World, um, you know, when it was just episode three, everyone thought it was probably going to be a bit dull, but then it turned out to be brilliant. Okay, we've got episode one with Faceless Ones as well. And that was, I mean, I think it's just an absolute rip rowing 25 minutes. It just doesn't stop at all. The mystery's set up, the, the bad guys are made clear, but it still does somehow sustain for six episodes. Um, but I can understand how someone would kind of perhaps lose interest a little bit in the middle, but it's I think it's because one of those one of the episodes that exists is definitely the slowest. Um Sam, what are your thoughts on the faceless ones? Uh I find it really interesting going from a story that's doing evil holiday camp to a story that's doing like sort of menace and, and danger in an airport that's doing that kind of like this is a time when package holidays had started to become more a lot more affordable for ordinary people and so it's it's what I, I guess what i like about this story is it feels so 60s in that it's doing it's it's kind of like it's up to date right it's it's like taking a very a, a very present phenomenon um and spinning a doctor who tale out of it i think that's really cool and that's like you couldn't have got an airport story during the Hartnell era because partly because the Hartnell era wasn't so steeped in, in the time it was made, I guess. Um, but partly because, you know, these sorts of things hadn't become so prevalent, I guess. Um, so I really, yeah, I, I really enjoy the setting for that. Um, and I think it feels super, it feels super sixties. And that's, that's kind of what I want from a 60s Doctor Who story. Um, it's great. I like that the, so the, the chameleons aren't sympathetic, but they do get, you know, most of them uh, leave the story alive and the Doctor has some ideas about how he might be able to help them and things like that. You know, it's not a story where everyone, all, all the all the aliens get blown up at the end. Um, so I really like that. Um, it, is, it, it is a little bit long, but I think it, it, it certainly held my attention. Uh, the whole way through, I never got bored. I do. I just wish Ben and Polly were in all of the episodes. I think there was no reason for them not to be, apart from behind the scenes sort of nonsense. Um, the fact that they that you know they just their departure scene was recorded with you know at the start and then and then appended to the end is, is a real shame. Um, I, their scene, their leaving scene is also like not great. I think like it's it's nice in that it's quite it is quite emotional. You know, sort of Ben saying we can stay on if we want, and the, and the kind of like elation that they're they're back where they want it to be at last. Um, it's really cool. Um, but the, the you know sort of like Ben, you can get your ship, Polly. You can like after Ben. It's not great. It's it's like I I like to sort of um, I guess head canon that as like Polly, look after Ben because Ben is useless. Um, <laughs> but like really, that's that's sort of like an excuse i'd like to make in my head for what's actually a bit of like misogynist writing you know it's it's not great um but yeah i i as the story as a whole i really enjoy i think it's it's doing a lot with its with its setting and it's and the uh and yeah with its time period and it's it's 
it's it's good. Yeah, it's really good. I've I've always looked at the look after Ben thing as Ben's a bit useless. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's 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 not the best thing uh, to be found in sixties Who that scene. I'd really I would really have liked it if they got a sort of Ian and Barbara montage of them um, sort of like going off and like sort of you know we get to see it's because it's a, a returning to their home time is a triumphant moment for them but we don't get to see their kind of thing afterwards and i know this is like i don't normally ship characters right but ben and polly are super cute and i and i know in the sort of like some some expanded media it's like confirmed that they get together but i would really like to see like some of that in in the same way that it's really obvious that ian and barbara are kind of a, a couple by the time they leave the tardis i would have liked like some of that as well um yeah, I, I think that's that's perfectly fair. A bit of Polly and Ben shipping. Um, I like to think it happened. I like to think they they ended up together. I think Big Finish kind of did it. I think it was it the Five Companions. Polly confirms. That yeah, it's a bit contradictory because I think in the I forget which Companion Chronicle it is, but it's got the weird stilty aliens on it. There's something something worlds. Or something. Yeah. Time. The forbidden times. Yeah, forbidden time. It's kind of implied yes. implied that they don't get together, but it's a yeah. It's a whole. It's it's a bit of a mess if you take all of all of the stories that have been made as 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 real. But su- such is being a Doctor Who fan. Contradictions are, are everywhere. So. Yeah. So it, it before the time war they did get together. After the time war, who knows? We'll we'll put it down to that. Okay, let's move on then. Let's move to our final story of the season. And uh, Faceless Ones is another story that ends on a cliffhanger. I'm enjoying stories ending on a cliffhanger and leading into the next one. Um, And of course, with Faceless Ones being set on exactly the same day as the War Machines, uh, the evil of the Daleks leads us into the third alien incursion that happened on that day. Or at least the third attempted takeover of Earth that happened on that day, I guess. Um, Evil of the Daleks is an interesting one. It's, I mean, we've talked about stories of two halves. Um, while I'm aware that this is a thing that doesn't exist, Evil of the Daleks is a story of three particularly uneven halves. Um, I'd say that the first episode of Evil is perhaps the one that I want to be found the most. I really like the idea of the second Doctor and Jamie hanging around TARDIS-less in 60s London. Uh, But obviously the action pretty quickly switches up. Uh, So, Jimmy, your thoughts on Evil of the Daleks? I think that, well, it's a great story. It is, for me, a little bit overrated. I think I've, I've said in the past, usually when a story is long I think no it's it's good they've got more time for characterization than that but this is one of the few stories that I think could afford to be shorter I think they I I loved the idea of the doctor and Jamie being stranded in present at the time London but they sort of they did a good job with those first two one and a half episodes and but they sort of got out of it pretty quick and there wasn't really much done with it I liked the idea of Waterfield selling antiques that weren't antiques but Basically, as soon as they go back to the 1800s, everything in the present gets forgotten about and never gets dealt with again. And so I think that's a bit of a shame. And I do love the story. I think Victoria gets a great introduction. I mean, well, it's not like she gets to do much, but you can see how traumatised she is by what's going on and what she's been put through and Jamie getting to rescue her and them making that connection and the Doctor basically at the end takes her on and from the next episode in the tomb of the Cybermen, you can sort of see that it's almost like he's the new, he, her new sort of dad. But um, it, I think it's an interesting thing to introduce a companion in a way where they're not like the main character. They're just sort of in the background of the story almost. But I mean, Victoria often does fall into that sort of trait later in her tenure. She's sort of, gets underserved and put in the background quite a bit and it sort of contributes to her ultimately leaving. And I think, yeah, it's a bit of a shame that she didn't get more to do with her intro, but I think she did the best she could with it and I think it worked well as an intro for her despite its faults. And, of course, I love the whole humanised Dalek thing and 
these Daleks playing games with the Doctor and wheeling him around like he's on a train and spinning him around in circles and making him dizzy. It's it's just so nice seeing these happy da- little Daleks that he's created. And then the Dalek Emperor's like, nope, we're going to Dalekify them and, and do it to all the other Daleks as well. But the these happy little baby Daleks who are good, they actually seem to be winning at the time that he leaves. And it's, yeah, it's a good little thing, this whole human nature, human factor, whatever you want to call it, that it actually these these Daleks, not all Daleks, but these ones are redeemable. And I think it's quite interesting and it's a very different take on the Daleks. And I think it works quite well seeing them as a contrast to the main ones. The other thing that I'd say was a fault for the episode is Kemmel. I think it was such a shame to see, you know, one of these rare non-white characters in the history of the show and he's basically mute and can't really talk. And I think the animation did a good job of sort of the way he sort of gestures and sort of explains things and look in his face. They sort of helped characterise him a bit and maybe it would have been as good in the surviving episodes or maybe it wouldn't, we don't know because he isn't in the only surviving one, but I think it's a shame that they sort of, yeah, did did such a bad job of representation there, like just making him silent and, you know, but I think I liked in the animation they did sort of work well together. Jamie's sort of rescuing him and it's showing the whole, oh, yeah, it's human nature's good. He saved the one who was trying to kill him, but then the one who's tried to kill him saved him and so... I think they did some interesting stuff with it, but it was just a shame that that character was so underserved and also the sort of lack of reaction or underreaction to his death from Victoria. Like he'd been the only one who was there for her for so long and yet she seems upset. But, I mean, compared to what you'd expect for that character in that circumstance with her, it was a bit of a shame that the reaction was so small and lacking. Yeah, it, I mean, Victoria goes through pure hell in this story. Before she's even started travelling with the Doctor, she's had definitely the worst time of any companion we've had. Um, I know Vicky sort of doesn't have a particularly nice set of circumstances when it comes to her introduction. But, yeah, this is brutal. She's held hostage by the Daleks. She's force-fed. She's... She sees her friends die. She sees her father die. Her entire life is sort of destroyed. Um, it's it's pretty brutal, and I, I I do sort of wonder if maybe having another his or companion from history, historical companion, wasn't the best move for them. Because yeah, you're right. Victoria doesn't really get to be that strong a character for most of the run. Uh, but I guess we'll talk about that a little bit more when we do season five. Uh, Greg, what are your thoughts on Evil of the Daleks? I love Evil of the Daleks. I know I said in the last episode that Power is my favorite uh, story of the season and possibly my favorite Dalek story of the classic series. And I, I, I'll stick with that just because I really like how, how tight and claustrophobic it is. But Evil of the Daleks is a very, very, very close second. I think this story is absolutely fantastic. I love that it basically has an extended prologue that links it so directly with Faceless Ones. It's almost like it's a six-part story with this one episode transition in between it and the, and the serial before it. I think um, it's it's maybe the single best story for Patrick Troughton's Doctor. Um, he is an absolute force in this, especially because he goes from the beginning of the story having no idea what's going on and being manipulated by the Daleks. And yet by the end of the story, he's completely turned that on its head. And now he's the one manipulating everyone else. Um, one of my favorite bits of acting of any doctor at any point is his reaction when the Daleks first enter the room in episode two. And thank God that's the episode that is saved because it's it's so good. It's so incredibly well-directed. It's so well-performed. Um, it's, 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 it's really fantastic. Like th- thematically, this is a really strong story that's dealing with the fundamental differences between Daleks and humans. It, it's, you know, following on from some of the stuff David Whitaker was writing about in Power of the Daleks and really expanding on it here. 
Um, the relationship between the doctor and Jamie is really probed to a level and a depth that we rarely see in the classic series. The doctor does manipulate Jamie. Jamie is rightfully angry about this, but even when he's angry, doesn't ever really grasp just how much the doctor was pushing his buttons. Um, Victoria, yeah, I mean, she's she doesn't contribute much. She's just terrified. But at least in this story, it makes sense. I mean, she's a she's a she's a kid. She's a teenager, and she's presented with this situation that's just completely beyond her comprehension and presented with these Daleks that are just completely evil and, and, and are just upending not only her life, but, you know, even her perspective on the world by how, how dismissive they are of things that she finds beautiful. And I can see why she would just spend the entire story in a, in an effective state of shock, which she does. Um, Unfortunately, I mean, I, I think when we get into season five, we'll talk about it, but they, you know, they never really give her a chance to move out of this characterization and it keeps coming back. But, but here it makes perfect sense. Um, I don't, I just, the, 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 the human Daleks are wonderful. The, the doctor instigating a Dalek civil war is amazing. You know, we, we don't have the actual episode seven, but we do have a lot of the, the set filming and, and, I mean, yes, there's obviously, you know, toy Daleks there, but I, I, I really think they, they would have, they probably pulled that off for the most part. And I, I wish we could see the original episodes for that. And it, it was intended to be the final Dalek story, the final end. And it really works in that sense. Like it, it, it it's, it's the show coming full circle. You know, it's the doctor returning to Starrow after meeting the Daleks there all the way back in Hartnell's second story. And you know, finally claiming victory over them. I, I, I can keep talking about this, but I, I love this story. It, it, it works so incredibly well and it's near the top of my list of stories. I would love to have more back from. Would you say that this is Dr. Who's first proper season finale? Yes. 100%. Um, most of the season finales up until this point. I mean, the end of, of Time Meddler is certainly like bookended like a season finale, but it the, the material isn't so much. This this definitely seems like the first one where they're trying to put a definitive end tag on it and not just having the, you know, season finale just being the point at which we take a few weeks off before starting the next season. Yeah, it it, it does feel as though I mean, it's certainly, you could argue, the biggest and most epic Doctor Who story there's been. I know we've had Master Plan, which is 12 parts, but it's there's a lot of travelling around on spaceships and recreating the chase there. You never get the sense of an entire Dalek army on Scarrow going to war with itself. It's massive for 60s Doctor Who. It's brilliant. Um, let's hear your thoughts on it, Sam. I'm going to be real with you. I haven't seen all of it. <laughs> so I thought this was for season five uh, until oh. you reminded me, reminded me last week that it wasn't. Uh, so I've, I've not seen the whole thing. Um, so all of the bits that like on Scarrow with actual like the Dalek action, you know, the bit that the, the story is about, I haven't seen. But I have watched the first two episodes of the animation. I thought it was quite good. Um the the yeah i enjoyed the the sort of mashup of uh victorian england and 60s england in those episodes i thought it was cool it's again it's a story that's doing sort of present cultural concerns because the, the, this there was kind of like a slight victorian revival or, or interest in victorian edwardian stuff around then you see that with like um God, what's he called the the the, the time travel guy the, the, what, the guy gets frozen. No, 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 no. The the, oh, the no. other show. Um, what's it called? Not Adamant. Adam Adamant. Yes, it's like it's yes. like um, it's a part of that same kind of thing. You know, the reason that show existed is because there was a, a, a renewed fascination with like, um, Victor, I guess as as the British Empire was ending, there was a fascination with the height of the British Empire and some kind of calls back to it and in in like pop culture, and so that's that um. Yeah, those elements kind of fit in, but yeah, the uh, the the bulk of the story I have not seen. I did not make time for it this week, um, but I liked the start, and 
also it's it's a story that is because it was meant to be the final end and all of this stuff and it, it's kind of like mythologized a little bit in fandom and called back to a lot in in extended media again so like what I have read is the eighth Doctor comic strip, Children of the Revolution, which is sort of a semi-sequel to this. Um, and I, I really liked it. And um, <laughs> it's, you know, brings back the, the like humanized Daleks or, or at least Alpha. Um, and I thought that was, and, and reading that when I was younger, um, because Evil of the Daleks is a story that is so well known, like I already knew everything that I needed to know going into that. And didn't take, didn't take away from it, but yeah, uh, I've not seen the whole thing. Oops. It just means that you're going to have to come back on and talk to us about it when you have seen the rest of it as well. All right, all right. Hear, yeah. I would love to hear what you think of the uh, Scarrow stuff. It's brilliant. Mm. Um, so what a season! Like that, this has been, uh, you know, going through all of these season by season. This is definitely the first one where there hasn't been a story that I thought, mm, yeah, that one's a bit of a dud. I think everything in this is consistently strong. Um, it's at least sort of better than average. You know, we we do sort of slump a little bit maybe with the moon base and the underwater menace does have uh, its reputation. Still don't think it's deserved, but there's been nothing in there where I thought, yeah, this isn't, you know, this isn't one I like, this isn't a brilliant story. I think it's a really, really strong season. I think it's the best that we've talked about so far. Um, it's definitely had its faults. It, you know, it's the TARDIS was too busy for a load of four parters. Uh, but um, yeah, I have thoroughly enjoyed talking about season four with you all. Um. So we will return, or at least uh, Jimmy, Greg and I shall return for season five at some point in the not too distant future. Uh, But for now, I will say thank you and goodbye to Jimmy. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you and goodbye to Greg. We will see you in season five. And a big thank you to Sam for coming to join us on season four as well. So thank you and goodbye, Sam. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's been really fun. Um, it's one of my favourites uh, and one of the only seasons that I've seen almost all of. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been really good talking about it. Love the recons, all of that. So yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great. Just a few episodes short. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, we'll be back for more spodcasting next week, but for now, goodbye. <laughs>